Hey, this is Jason from Slapdash, and this episode is sponsored by 606 Iron, located in the Big M Plaza in Whitley City, Kentucky. 606 Iron has cardio equipment, free weights, numerous weight training machines, weekly kettlebell classes, and tanning beds. Stop by 606 Iron for membership information or call 606-310-4918. History, art, science, and everything else. They slap down a new topic and dash off to next. It's a great big world with so much to know. Like cryptids, time travel, and the history of Poe. If you want to be a smarty, better learn something fast. With Shannon and Jason on Slapdash Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to discuss natural disasters. As always, across from me is Shannon Deaton, and Shannon is the only person I know that has survived two hurricanes, an earthquake, and a current pandemic. <laughs> the man with nine lives, Shannon Deaton, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm uh, So I'm the man of steel. Sure, kind of like Superman. I'm Superman. Yeah. Yeah, I've survived a lot of things, you know. You, you name it, I've been there. Yeah, so so two hurricanes, mm-hmm. an earthquake, that's three, a pandemic, four. So you should at least have five lives left. I do. I, I once rode a shark into a volcano. I mean, that's how intense I can be. <laughs> well, that, that may count three or four there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a natural disaster, <laughs> but uh, it was fun. <laughs> it was like worth like a picture for a keychain or something. Oh, right? yeah, 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 absolutely. On a coffee mug or yeah, something. Yeah, I put it on postcards to all the family. <laughs> so... Every year, natural disasters claim thousands of lives across the globe. Uh, In fact, an average of 60,000 people die each year due to tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, uh, etc. Many of these natural disasters are covered intensely by media outlets such as the Weather Channel, yet even with advanced warning systems, natural disasters are still uh, extremely dangerous. Over the years, there have been numerous disasters, uh, but for this episode, we have identified several of the worst and strangest ones, or perhaps maybe the most historic ones. So we're going to kick things off with the eruption of a volcano named Mount Vesuvius. So this is going to be the the oldest one that, that we look at. Mount Vesuvius is located in southwestern Italy, about five miles from the city of Pompeii. And if you lived in the city of Pompeii on October 24th, in the year 79 AD, that was most likely the last day you were alive. <laughs> and that was a long time ago, too. Wow. <laughs> That's right. I mean, these were literally biblical days. Yeah. And this would have been about 40 years, roughly, after the crucifixion. Sure. You know, sometime around there. So this is a long time ago. So on this date, the volcano, uh, Mount Vesuvius, erupted spewing superheated gases, molten rock, and hot ash 21 miles into the air. Scientists estimate that the eruption had 100,000 times the thermal energy of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Oh, my goodness. I mean, imagine that. Yeah, that's incredible, man. The city of Pompeii, uh, located about five miles away, was destroyed and buried underneath several feet of hot ash deposits. Uh, An approximate 16,000 people died. Archaeologists have unearthed over 1,000 skeletons around Pompeii, and the vast majority of them are in the fetal position. So, have Aww. you ever have you ever seen these these remains that they have found? And, and I, I've kinda, not seen those, but I can imagine how yeah, terrible that is. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, 
they're just sort of just like in a fetal position and it's like they're the the, the bones are a little bit more well preserved than you would expect kind of and mm-hmm. then they're able to like make molds out of out of them it's it's sort of creepy uh, to be honest but wow. uh it, it's sort of like a just a really strange almost like cemetery type thing that they that they have found there and to give you an idea of the heat that was coming from the ash Scientists suggest that it was approximately 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit. And in comparison, today's uh, cremation furnaces are set at about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. So just a couple hundred degrees less than what somebody would be cremated at is what approximately 16,000 people in the city of Pompeii just almost instantly had to endure. Man, that's terrible. And when these volcanoes erupt, I mean, they have no warning whatsoever, especially in these days. It was just all of a sudden there's a mountain. Hey, there's some and smoke. And suddenly it's it's just an explosion of lava and gas and ash. And right. That's and, it. And even from five miles away, I mean, with the way that the, the wind blows and the, and the speed at which you know this lava and, and such was, was coming, I mean, it's, it's 79 AD and you know, we can't get... You know, in our vehicles and drive a hundred miles an hour away, right? I mean, Man, best scary. we have, best we have are horses. Yeah, and it's just not enough time to to get out. And you said they were some of the remains were kind of curled into the fetal position. Yeah. Man, that's uh, sad. Uh, uh, almost all of them that they have found. So you could imagine, like that's just the, almost like a uh, just giving up, just just a reaction at, at yeah. the last moment. Right. Uh, uh, medical folks think that uh, it may be some kind of like a, a muscle reaction to the intense heat, like they couldn't help it, like it was just that's a, just what you have it was to just do. A reaction to wow. yeah. So sad, but but really fascinating. So th- this volcano uh, in Italy in 79 AD just exploded out of nowhere and killed approximately 16,000 people. That was five miles away. Man. So the the five miles, was that from the heat or was that from the ash, the smoke, the lava? I mean, what was it the, that, the, that the, could carry that far from a uh, volcano? Uh, both. So all that. Both, yeah. Wow, that's scary. Insane. So Jason, up next I have an event called the Great Galveston Storm. Have you ever heard of this one? I have. So I I hadn't heard of this one before we started researching this episode and looking into some of the worst natural disasters. But the Great Galveston Storm came ashore in Galveston, Texas on the night of September 8th, 1900. So just around 100, 120 years ago with an estimated strength of a Category 4 hurricane. And a Category 4 is the second highest classification of hurricane, and it has to sustain winds of 130 to 156 miles an hour in order to classify as a Category 4. An estimated 6,000 to 12,000 people died on Galveston Island and the mainland. On that night, Texas's most advanced city was nearly destroyed. And just to give you a sense of how big of a deal Galveston actually was. At the beginning of the 20th century, Galveston was the grandest city in Texas. It had the most millionaires, the nicest mansions. It actually had the first telephones and electric lights in the state. So after the 1900 storm, Galveston never really did regain that status. It just obliterated the economy, obliterated the families, and it's, it was just a terrible event around the turn of the century and just caused massive devastation that they have still yet not recovered from in a lot of ways. And as you mentioned with um, the, the volcano, forecasting at this time in the 1900s was not great. You know, essentially these uh, events would occur and no one would ever know they, they were getting it to happen until it would just happen. And I think that's one of the reasons that these numbers are just so high. 
whenever you look at 6,000, 12,000 people dying of an event like a storm. It seems like, you know, now, typically, for the most part, you know, we see hurricanes coming days before they, yeah. and and the majority of people are able to make some decisions they to, can evacuate to, to get out. Right? And, and get out. But at this time, people mostly relied on spotty reports from ships in the Gulf of Mexico. People would say, oh, we see a storm on the horizon, and you could believe it or not, because that's really the only information yeah. you had coming back to you it wasn't there was no weather channel there was no weather channel yeah so the storm was visible by citizens of galveston but as they gazed on the shoreline they had no idea of the devastation that was approaching to them it just looked like there's a storm coming they had no idea to know that this was a category four hurricane Catherine vetter pauls who was a resident there during the time she was six years old she said this everyone went about their usual tasks until about 11 a.m When my brother Jacob and our cousin, Alan Brooks, came from the beach with the report that the gulf was very rough and the tide very high. Catherine went on to say, About half past three, Jacob and Alan came running, shouting excitedly that the gulf looked like a great gray wall about 50 feet high and moving slowly toward the island. I can't even imagine a gaze out on a Man, horizon that's creepy. a 50-foot wall yeah. of storm and water and sea. Just, it's scary is what it is. The hurricane, of course, was unnamed because no one knew it was coming. When it swept in, it had an estimated tidal surge of 15 feet, so high that it literally swallowed the barrier island between Galveston and Texas, which was only about five feet above sea level, completely destroyed it swallowed it whole. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, just, just ran it over. Another resident, Annie McCullough, who was 22 at the time of the storm, said this, Oh, it was an awful thing. You want me to tell you, but no tongue can tell it. Annie's family was on a mule-drawn wagon trying to escape the rising tide. When I think about natural disasters and the history that we have of them, I don't always think of wagons necessarily. I think about news reports and helicopters and yeah, people yeah. fleeing and, and traffic backed up on the interstate. That's just what we've seen. That's what we've right. seen and what yeah. we've witnessed. But in this account, they were trying to escape on mule-drawn wagons. Uh, and this particular observer, Annie, went on to say, the water was coming so fast the wagon getting so it was a floating the poor mules swimming that was pulling and the men laid flat on their stomachs holding the little children that's a horrific sight right there yeah man annie also said that her mother tied the children together with an old trunk strap so that she could hold on to them as long as she could so she just gathered up the family tied them up and just held on for dear life and that's all they could do because they literally could not get away fast enough and that's just wild yeah Survivors of the storm wrote of wind that sounded, quote, like a thousand little devils shrieking and whistling of six foot waves coming down Broadway Avenue of a grand piano riding atop one of the waves of roof shingles that whirled through the air like saw blades and streetcar tracks that tore through houses like battering rams. Man, that sounds something like something out of a novel. It's pretty descriptive. It's descriptive. So the aftermath of this storm is... um, something that's been discussed in a lot of the history and a lot of the research. Uh, The storm began to subside around daybreak, and on the morning of September 9th, the coastal city of Galveston was just completely obliterated. There were people frightened out of their wits and weeping at the top of their lungs. Corpses were everywhere, and authorities forced men at gunpoint to collect the dead, pile them on barges, and dump them in the gulf for burial. So they didn't even really get a proper burial. They just 
send them back out into the sea because you have to think here. I mean, we're we're talking thousands, six to twelve thousand people. Dead. I'm sure they didn't have the the manpower, the resources, or no. maybe even the land, perhaps maybe yeah. to to do all that. And can you imagine being forced at gunpoint to to pick up corpses and throw them back into the sea? I mean, it's it was just a wild time. Many of the corpses washed back on shore, and some people started looting jewelry off the corpses and other items. And authorities ordered that thieves be shot on sight because they said there's no place for that here. This is basically a war zone. You have no right to be out here making it worse. And they said if if anybody starts looting these corpses, shoot them. <laughs> that was wow. that was the end of that. Today, the city of uh, Galveston has constructed a 17-foot seawall, and over 2,000 surviving structures have been jacked up with sand pumped underneath to raise them higher from the ground to prevent disasters like this in the future. And man, to, to read it and to hear it, it, it was absolutely terrifying, an absolute tragedy, disaster um, in, in the highest sense of the terms, for sure. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. That's, that's really sad, but golly. The the uh, what you were saying there about the uh, wagon and sort of the water was just sort of yeah. running up on on them and kind of just pretty much floating them off. That's just just tying people together that's because awful. you knew, can you imagine? I mean, you're you're going to lose your family. You you can't do anything about it, and and you're just as quick as you can rounding them up, tying them together, and that's your best effort to keep the storm from hold, washing hold them, them away. Yeah. So, Sad. Jason, uh, what, what's up next? On January 12th, 2010, there was a 7.0 magnitude earthquake that hit about 15 miles away from Port-au-Prince, which is the capital of Haiti. The devastation was massive uh, as it killed about 150,000 people and caused several hundred thousand more to be homeless. All in all, about $8 billion worth of damage uh, has occurred. And I don't know, you know that, that's been 10 years ago, mm. uh, actually a little more than 10 years ago. So I don't know if you've seen pictures of that. There, there's been a lot of like uh, telethons. I've and, seen more about this one. There's been yeah. a lot of uh, relief efforts and absolutely people doing mission trips. I hear about mission trips to Haiti. Going to still. Haiti all the time, yeah. yeah. And uh, the, the the vast majority of, of the damage has still not been repaired a, a, a decade later. I mean, it just totally ravaged the, that country, and, and particularly uh, Port-au-Prince. And uh, one specific example about uh, a, a citizen of Haiti that ha- has a Kentucky connection, have you ever heard of a guy named Scal Labissiere? Scal Labissiere. Scal Labissiere. Ever heard of that name? I don't think so. Should, uh, should I have? Well, he's basketball okay. related. Uh, well, then I'm probably going to get booed off of this podcast yeah. for not knowing that. <laughs> well, he only stayed one year. So, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, so Scal was, uh, he, he actually arrived at the University of Kentucky, played basketball for uh, for John Calipari. He played one year, and uh, and then he ended up going into the, the NBA. He was drafted, I think, maybe late first round. He didn't have like a, a tremendous year, but it was an okay year. And so he was drafted in, in the the 2016 draft. But what he, what he had to endure to get there is was was remarkable uh so obviously he was a young kid in 2010 okay this would oh, yeah. have been the probably middle school age sure and uh so he'd actually had just gotten back from basketball practice uh with his with his brother and uh, he said he went into the bathroom to brush his teeth and mm. that's when the the entire house starts to shake uncontrollably and just things are going off the the walls and then all of a sudden there there was no wall Mm-hmm. And so he said that uh, that his mother and his brother that they they rushed into the one room. Luckily, that the walls did not collapse. Uh, on one wall did fall, and it fell on top of a uh, a desk that they were under. Mm. But he said that that some some bricks did land on him. It did hurt him some. 
but not like tremendously bad. So his father comes running in like an hour later and, you know, thinking that his family's dead because the father was away, you know, just a few miles down the road. So he comes back. So he starts massively trying to, you know, go through the rubble of his house to find his family. Well, luckily he finds them all uh, there alive. Wow. Uh, but Scal uh, ends up being injured. And so he's in the hospital and basically uh, cannot walk for two months. Hmm. And so he, you know, eventually kind of rehabilitates and he's able to walk again. And then a few months after that, he kind of picks basketball up again. And then a few years later, he ends up uh, coming to America and, and, you know, being an all-star. And that's right? the story. And that, that's kind of the story. Yeah. But to hear his take on, on that day uh, is fascinating. You know, huh. when, when you actually hear, hear him and you know how successful that he's been, but to, to look back and just think one inch here, a foot here, maybe something falls here, and maybe we're not even talking to this guy. It's just know, a today. miracle they were found under that desk and that it held yeah. up and that everything was okay. Yeah. And and like you said, even today, that there had, for whatever reason, this one has gotten, it seems like, more attention in terms of humanitarian aid. Yeah. Uh, than than perhaps others. Uh, now, obviously, Hurricane uh, Hurricane Katrina is is another. But as far as outside of the country, right? Uh, I think this is the one that's probably received. It's got the, the most. most media attention. It's gotten the most yeah. relief effort. Um, Haiti is just the one you hear about almost above all others, except maybe Katrina, possibly. Right. Yeah. And speaking of Hurricane Katrina, that's that's the next one up on the list to discuss. And it was the morning of August twenty eighth, two thousand five. The National Weather Service issued an urgent weather alert. It said, devastating damage expected. Most of the area will be uninhabitable for weeks, perhaps longer. So they did have a warning for Hurricane Katrina. They knew it was coming. One day later, on the morning of August 29th, Hurricane Katrina slammed into the Gulf Gulf Coast. By that afternoon, the storm had slowly moved on, and some people started to feel like, well, it wasn't as bad as we thought it were, was going to be but the water continued to rise and rise and rise it was it was sort of like a slow burn a little mm, bit because yeah. it, with some of these storms it just sort of washes in destroys everything and you know it has happened hurricane katrina just happened slowly and over time and the water continued to rise across the gulf and slowly crept through the cities covering 80 percent of new orleans so if you can imagine your own that's, city and think about crazy what 80 percent coverage would look like with just seawater right i mean it's just it's just wild hurricane katrina ultimately became one of the most costly and destructive disasters in u.s history nearly 1800 people died and 1.5 million were forced to leave their homes and thank god for that i mean if they hadn't had the warning a lot lot worse millions I, i would estimate in the tens of thousands at least if not hundreds of thousands in property damage alone cost amounted to 108 billion dollars which was as expensive as the entire Apollo moon landing project. Just a massive amount of money was expended on um, all the structural damage and everything that happened, not to mention the loss of life that occurred as a result of Hurricane Katrina. So in the aftermath of the event, citizens of New Orleans have recounted how this modern, powered, connected, police, orderly American city could descend into utter chaos just just in a few days i mean it's a city like any city in america you have your law enforcement you have electricity you have running water you have a general feeling of a sense of order and yet this hurricane rushes in and jason all of that goes out the window there was no 911 service no emergency rooms no electricity no stores no communication system at all 
The city had become pre-industrial, maybe even medieval, and no one was coming. No one was in charge, and no one knew what to do. I mean, it was just a complete blackout. There, there was nothing. I mean, no one there to help. There was no one sending relief aid. This event was responded to so very slowly. I think in a previous podcast, whenever we were talking about Walmart, we even noted that Walmart was actually uh, better in their response and quicker oh, yeah, in their response yeah. than even FEMA yeah. to, to Hurricane Katrina because they knew the people in the area. They had such a strong community connection that the Walmart started ushering in supplies right. and, and providing relief even ahead of the, the government agencies. But once rescuers showed up, people were pulled from rooftops because the city was devastated with, with the rising waters. And they deposited these people on dry land, and then they were left completely on their own. They didn't get supplies. They didn't get an answer as to who was coming to help them after that. It was literally such a crisis that they would just pull people off the roofs, drop them on dry land, and say bye. Because they had to rush off to to get someone else. Yeah, that they didn't have time to do any sort of follow-up after that. So how did people react when everything they knew was stripped away from them? Some police stayed on the job heroically. Others abandoned the city. Some people joined the looters, and some flood victims preyed on one another. But mostly, people helped each other. They shared water, sandwiches, clean clothes, and I think the best and worst parts of humanity were highlighted with a little bit of a triumph on the good side of things. Overall, people did help each other. Today, New Orleans has 110,000 fewer people than before Katrina. However, for the first time in a decade, as of today, the city's population is growing instead of shrinking steadily. So they're on an uptick for the first Mm. time since Hurricane Katrina occurred back in 2005. You know, I've actually ran into folks like in uh, in South Carolina, uh, in in, uh, Knoxville, in Mm -hmm. Tennessee, and I've I've talked to them and I'd, you know, just sort of in conversation, I'd be like, hey, where are you from? And they're like, well, you know, I've lived in Knoxville now for, you know, 10, 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, they would say, like, when I was younger, we lived in New Orleans. But after the hurricane, we left. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard, like, just random folks tell me that in conversation before. They were just displaced from yeah. the, the lower cities up to yep. Tennessee and other yep. parts. That's amazing. Yeah. And it, it's, it's strange to me that this occurred all the way back in 2005. It seems so recent because there's always something yeah. about it being it's, discussed. It, it's been a little while. Yeah. yeah. It's been a little while. So, Jason, you want to take a quick break here and come back and discuss a little bit more? Well, I think that's a great idea. Hey, everyone. We're happy to announce that the podcast now has a merchandise store. Shannon, everyone loves hoodies and everyone loves coffee. Yeah, and you can pick up a nice slapdash hoodie or a slapdash mug and drink your next cup of joe right out of a slapdash cup. (laughs) We also have t-shirts and stickers. Yeah, we do. So come on by and log on to www.slapdashpod.com forward slash store. That's www.slapdashpod.com forward slash store. Welcome back. And on today's episode, we are exploring natural disasters. So the next one that we're going to discuss is the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami. So really, this was kind of a double whammy here, Shannon. Yeah, it was. Uh, This occurred, uh, again, 2004 on December 26th, uh, the day after Christmas. Uh, The epicenter of the uh, of the earthquake was off the west coast of Indonesia. The earthquake itself uh, registered 9.1, uh, and it caused a rupture along the fault between the Burma Plate and the Indian Plate. 
Waves of over 100 feet were recorded, and an estimated 228,000 people died. Oh, my gosh. uh, In 14 different countries. And it's one of the deadliest natural disasters ever recorded in in human history. Uh, The earthquake itself was the third largest ever recorded uh, in in recent history. Uh, And then the the overall relief operations was, uh, so far they have raised $14 billion, but that's really just been a drop in in the bucket. Uh, The United Nations, shortly after this event occurred and they assessed all the damage, the United Nations uh, basically said that it would be the most expensive relief relief operation in human history. I can't imagine. Yeah. Did you say it crossed how many countries? It crossed 14 different countries. Uh, and obviously some hit more than others. Yeah. But but 14 different countries, 228,000 people died. And that's not counting the hundreds of thousands more that were displaced. Uh, that's insane. Because of it. Uh, and again, absolutely without warning. You know, just an earthquake under the sea and here we go. It's hard to predict that stuff. It, it really is. I mean, whereas you can see a hurricane forming, you might have 24, 48 hours to figure it out and get a plan together. Earthquakes could literally occur at any given time. It, it's hard to monitor that seismic activity. I don't think we have our hand on the pulse of that as yeah. much as we do hurricanes and other sort of natural disasters. I think, to, to, to my knowledge, I think I've only felt an earthquake one time, mm-hmm. and that's been several years ago. But I remember it was on a Saturday, and I think I was watching like basketball or football bar or something and i remember i was uh sitting on the ground on in, in my living room up mm-hmm. against the couch yep and i was just kind of it was probably like three o'clock or something i was sort of uh, tuned out and then all of a sudden i thought i felt something shake and then i thought did i just feel that and then mm-hmm. i then i heard things moving and i thought <laughs> and then and then my oldest daughter came out and she and she was like did you just hear something and i yep. said i think i did mm-hmm. and then sure enough about an hour later here comes all the reports you know that it yep. happened, and I think that particular one happened in, in, in somewhere in Tennessee, but it was right on the it, Tennessee it Kentucky border, I think. Yeah. And I remember just shortly after that, you may not remember this, you called me. It, it couldn't have been too long ago because you called me and I, I said something like, So, did you feel the ground move? And then you just started laughing <laughs> oh, and you said, It's so weird you said that. That's because, right. Yeah, yeah I, I did call you, didn't I? That's <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah, because I was calling to see if, if, if you had, you know, if, if you had as well. Yeah. And, uh, yep. It's, it's kind of strange. I, I think maybe that time and maybe one other time is the only times i've ever yeah. felt an earthquake well and thankfully thankfully and <laughs> yeah. it was very minimal i mean nothing really happened there was just sort of a rumbling you know you, you kind of felt the tremor of it a little bit but otherwise we were perfectly safe nothing near the levels of catastrophe no. we, we've talked about here and uh we have a uh, a first-hand account according to the uh, the guardian website this is a 17 year old named marthunus and this was his take on what happened on that particular day He says, that morning I was playing soccer with my friends. We ran home after the strong earthquake, and after that I heard a really loud noise like an aeroplane. When I looked at the sea, I saw something I had never seen before, and I was terrified. My family rushed into our minivan, but the road was full with everyone trying to escape. The black wave hit our minivan, turning us over several times before I blacked out. When I regained consciousness, I was in the water, holding on to a school chair. I floated until I landed on a beach. I had no idea where I was and why I was so hungry and thirsty. There were bodies and debris everywhere. Under a mangrove tree, I saw a mattress had washed up, and I started searching for packets of noodles and bottles of water, collecting them around my mattress. After five days, I didn't have any water or food left. I survived there by myself until day 20. 
Mm. That's when I saw people coming to collect the bodies. They rescued me and took me to the hospital where I found my father. He told me my mother and sister had died in the tsunami. Man. So by by himself for almost three weeks, not really knowing what in the world has just happened, you know, basically surviving by. by himself on this mattress and just sort of collecting things as they float by. That's about the best he could do. Mm. That's incredible. What's wild about these stories is that you always hear about the catastrophe, the disaster, but then you also hear about the triumph of the human spirit and and what people are able to overcome. Right. And that's like a perfect example of that. It really is. Yeah. And uh, that's also exemplified in our next and I think maybe last natural uh, disaster. This one was the Lake Nios disaster. Have you ever heard of this one? Uh, I've heard of it, but I don't know a ton about it. I think this one's a little different, isn't it? It is. This is one that I, I really didn't know this was a thing of course we all hear of uh, tornadoes volcanoes hurricanes tsunamis that's common lingo when it comes to natural disasters but on august 21st 1986 a limnic eruption at lake nios in northwestern cameroon which is a country in central africa killed 1746 people and 3500 livestock that was a an area that was sparsely populated so this catastrophe had the potential to kill way more people but since it was in a remote region of northwestern cameroon there really weren't a whole lot of people there but it had i think maybe like a 16 mile blast radius so Hmm. if there were a more densely populated group of people there could have been a lot worse but a limnic eruption is something i never really heard of before this one is a little bit different a limnic eruption also known as a lake overturn is a rare type of natural disaster in which dissolved carbon dioxide suddenly erupts from deep lake waters forming a gas cloud capable of suffocating wildlife livestock and humans and the event's kind of been compared to opening a can of a carbonated beverage so you ever pop the top of a pepsi after it's been kind of shaken up a little bit and all of a sudden just an eruption same general principle while the can is sealed the carbon dioxide is at rest you you really can't even see that it's bubbling or having any activity whatsoever if if you could see through the can it's just at rest Um, when the can is opened and the pressure is released the carbon dioxide comes out of solution and suddenly rushes upward that's the phenomenon we see with um, limnic eruptions hmm. compared to opening you know, a Pepsi can. So this was the same principle there. The eruption at Lake Nios triggered the sudden release of about 100,000 to 300,000 tons of carbon dioxide, which initially rose from the lake at a speed of 62 miles per hour. It just shot straight up into the sky. My gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, since the gas was heavier than the air, it descended onto nearby villages, displacing all of the oxygen and suffocating people and livestock within 16 miles of the lake. So that's what happens. Basically, the it just dissolve, pushes the air above. Yeah, pushes it. It just pushes out it of out of the way, and that, huh. that's that's kind of scary because it's an invisible killer. Obviously, you can't see the carbon dioxide. You might hear the eruption of the lake potentially. You you wow. hear a sudden explosion. It could be miles and miles away, but you, but you really can't see. You don't yeah. see anything, and then all of a sudden, you start to be short of air. Yeah. And you, sh- you start to gasp. And what's happening is the, the carbon dioxide that's been displaced is suddenly rushing back toward the earth because it's heavier than the air. And whenever so it's it hits, fall. Yeah. it falls straight down and it pushes the oxygen out of the way. And so there's nothing left to breathe. And people just literally suffocate. Man, that's frightening. 
It is. The sudden explosion of the lake also caused a 79-foot-high tsunami wave, which damaged and destroyed all the vegetation immediately surrounding the lake. One survivor of the event, Joseph Nequain, described what happened when he awoke after the gases had struck. He said, I could not speak. I became unconscious. I could not open my mouth because then I smelled something terrible. I heard my daughter snoring in a terrible way, very abnormal. I collapsed and fell. Joseph went on to say that he had strange red stains all over his clothes and wounds all over his arms that he could not remember or explain. When Joseph awoke again, he found that his daughter was dead, and so were his neighbors. He rode his motorcycle through the town, and he didn't see any sign of living things. When he arrived at a nearby town, he was unable to walk or talk, and his body was completely weak, but he did survive. Hmm. So I, I think he ran into a friend, and they kind of got together. They realized that all of their neighbors, their families, their livestock were gone. And in order to survive, they had to make it into the next town. And when they got there, they were just absent of oxygen and, and could barely breathe and just barely got into town and basically collapsed when they arrived. Yeah, probably just probably just feet away from dying themselves. Just, just inches away. So in the aftermath of this event, a degassing system has been installed at this particular lake with the aim of reducing the concentration of carbon dioxide in the waters and reducing the risk of further uh, risk of further eruptions. Scientists have conducted studies to determine if other African lakes are at risk for a limnic eruption. They found another lake named Lake Kivu, which is located in the Congo, and it is 2,000 times larger than Ooh. Lake Nyos. 2,000 times larger and is also super saturated with carbon dioxide so it's just an accident waiting to happen unfortunately geologists found evidence that outgassing events around this particular lake happened about every thousand years and destroyed all life within its radius so this is one that's erupted before and they found evidence in the soil of i assume just skeletal remains so i wonder when the last were, eruption I, was i know <laughs> isn't that scary to, yeah. to think about was it like 1020 was it oh man it, it's a death bomb every <laughs> 1000 years i mean isn't that just just the craziest craziest thing but uh yeah this this was a new one on me i'd never heard of limnic eruptions i didn't know lakes uh, were something to be feared i didn't know that was a term so Shannon, I have uh, one very weird one here. That this is, I guess, a quasi-natural disaster. Okay. All right. So, so honorary think, mention here. Honorary mention. I don't think this really qualifies as an as a natural disaster, really. But I guess you can be the judge Worth of it. Worth mentioning. We have the Great Molasses Flood, or also called the Boston Molasses Disaster of January fifteenth, nineteen nineteen, when uh, basically a large storage tank filled with two point three million gallons of molasses just explodes oh, wow. just explodes it bursts and uh the the resultant wave of molasses it just rushes through the streets uh at approximately 35 miles an hour wave of molasses is something no one should ever say a or wave hear. of molasses <laughs> or witness at 35 miles an hour and then here's the horrible thing it killed 21 people killed 21 people and injured 150 others oh my gosh so while that's not a uh, a tornado or an earthquake that that was molasses it's a strange, strange but it thing. was still kind of a massacre yeah i mean that was that was awful wow so jason we both mentioned that we felt an earthquake has there been anything else in your life experience close to a natural disaster i know we have like tornado warnings all the time 
in the yeah. region in which we live. Have you ever seen one of those or, or been close to one? I've uh, I've been close to one. I've never actually seen one. Um, actually, back last spring, I guess it was, not this past spring, but the spring before last, I started getting phone calls about 11 o'clock at night, and I had just so went to bed. And, and they, they were giving really bad storms that night. Yeah. And so we'd already kind of had, we'd unplugged the TV, and we'd had the candles out, and we kind of were, were prepared, but I just sort of went on to bed. And I'd been to bed probably about a half an hour, and I had just dozed off and my phone starts ringing like three or four times and and i get text messages and it just says are you all okay mm. and i thought well yeah you know I'm, uh, yeah I'm, why wouldn't we be you know and so i look on facebook and sure enough it says you know here's the damage on williamsburg street oh my gosh and i look and probably about a quarter of a mile from where i live mm. the roofs were taken off I mean, huge, massive trees torn up, cars destroyed, and huh. I mean, it was honestly like like a quarter of a mile from where I lived, and wow. it and it did not even turn our wicker furniture over outside. Really? No, I mean, we huh. we've had much more damage uh, before with just like mild wind, and there was a what like an F one. It was a minor tornado that yeah. went through, but but it done a lot a lot of damage to several people's homes. Man, that's crazy. Yeah, I guess that's probably the closest that I've that I've come personally. I've never really been that close to one, although um, here just this year, actually, I think it was earlier, maybe like January, February, something like that. Alex and I, my, my wife, we were asleep, and so were our girls. And all of a sudden, my phone starts buzzing, and it's ringing that weird ring. You know, there's a normal ring, like when somebody's calling, but when there's like an alert, right. it, I guess yeah. it wants to get it's your a little attention. Different. So it'll be like ring, ring, stop, ring, stop, ring, ring, stop. And I guess it does that intentionally, like, well, what's going on here? I better look at this. So I picked up my phone and it said, take cover immediately. And so, you know, I looked over at Alex and she she looked over at me and we both jumped up and we ran. We grabbed the girls. They were asleep in their beds. Uh, and then we took them downstairs. This is when we still lived in Williamsburg. You've, you've been to the right. house. We kind of had an upper level and a lower level yeah. to the house. We took them downstairs. Uh, we went into a bathroom that was kind of centrally located down in the downstairs. The girls really didn't know what was going on. We, you know, we tried to make a game of it. Oh, we're going to go down here and lay down in the floor. <laughs> for a minute in the bathroom because that's what we do <laughs> you ready for some fun uh, get the board games out <laughs> so meanwhile my family's calling oh we just heard you know there's a tornado you know potential right where you're at are, are you okay and yeah we're, we're fine and i think it was something like eight minutes uh it was like you know this will be over in eight minutes because i, I don't know how they precisely determine the time that right. way, but it's like in eight minutes, this is over. So it was the most intense eight minutes ever because on one hand, you've got the girls kind of giggling and happy to be back out of bed and awake. And on the other hand, you've got family texting, are you okay? <laughs> you know, you have a, they had this timer going down. The, the timer's time, ticking yeah. down and, you know, we can't hear anything that's going on because we're centrally located essentially down underground in a right. way. Uh, but it passes by, you know, I go upstairs and kind of get the, make sure everything's all clear and then get everybody up out of the basement. But nothing really happened. It was just strong winds and maybe the potential for a tornado, but that was really the closest we've ever come to to being in an actual weather event, I guess. And, and maybe we weren't that close, but we, I felt the fear it sure of it. sure seemed like a it, right? Bit. Yeah. yeah, sure. So Jason, interesting episode. A lot of uh, research here that I have to say I wasn't very familiar with before yeah, we dug this, in. Yeah, 
this particular episode was a suggestion of, of one Mindy Creekmore. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we, your we, wife. We were traveling this. the other day, and we were talking about topics, and she said, uh, I think natural disasters would be an interesting one. And I, as soon as she said that, I thought, yep, yep. we'll do that. That's that a pre- sounds great. That's a pretty good idea. <laughs> Way to go, Mindy. Good yep. job. So thanks to all of our listeners who are joining us each week. We encourage you to share the podcast, subscribe, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at slapdashpod and we will catch you in the next episode take care everyone